This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a delight to be with you today. On this program, as you may know, we ask a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive, and we have a conversation about that, and then we ask him or her to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. And my guest today is Megan O'Rourke, Megan O'Rourke, a finalist for both the Patterson Poetry Prize and Britain's Forward First Book Prize. Welcome, Megan O'Rourke. Thanks. So the poem that you've chosen to read for us is Tapestry by John Ashbery, who is, I suppose, for many people, the great American poet of the era. Yes, this poem caught my eye, I suppose, first because I, I really love John Ashbery's poetry. I love something about the melancholy quality of it and the richness of the language and the mystery. And this is a poem, actually, I have loved for a long time. I really fell in love with it in college when I first started writing poetry. And when I saw that The New Yorker had published it, I thought that would be fun to talk about. Now, you say a mystery, despite the fact that he is... Uh, the best-known poet of the era, I'd say. Yeah. Um, the fact is that he's also best known for what one might describe as mystery, as you just have, or what some would describe as kind of muddiness or the miasmic. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's often described as being dauntingly difficult. And when I first started reading him, I thought, what? <laughs> you know, what? what is this? I came to really love his work. And I wrote a piece about him a few years ago and, and his work where I talked about the fact that in some ways he's a poet who is really tuned into the different registers of American language. And um, he's almost like a kind of transistor radio, right? So that one of his poems takes you through lots of different modes, from the kind of high romantic to the Dada or surrealist to even the kind of pedantic. And I think he's a very funny poet, too. In terms of the radio, are you thinking of the era, or it was once quite dramatic how one moved the knob around and one could move from one station yeah. to the next? That's what you're thinking of. Exactly. One's receiving a series of signals from Absolutely. different registers. Yes, it's like it's like receiving these different signals and even sometimes receiving that static in between. I think one of the really fascinating things about Ashbury, which probably is maddening to some, and sometimes is maddening to me, is that he almost kind of draws the static in two. It's not all this kind of pure, high poetic register, right? There's a kind of daffiness to it, too. Um, he has talked about wanting to write about the experience of experience, a quote I really love because I think 
it starts to get at what his poems do. You can't always decipher the exact meaning of an Ashbery poem, but I think they give you a series of feelings and they give you a kind of experience of language that's really something poetry can do more than any form. T.S. Eliot said at one point that poetry may communicate before it is fully understood or something along those lines. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, that's why I love poetry. It communicates on a kind of limbic level, and it communicates through sound and through these kind of almost primal sense experiences as well as the larger meaning. I think sometimes we get very caught up looking for the meaning and we forget to just enjoy the poem. Although both are important. That's because in many cases we think that the poem cannot possibly mean what it says. Absolutely. And you probably experience this teaching. I certainly do. You know, the the sort of student looking to decode the poem. And surely this also has to do with the teaching as, of poetry as a puzzle to be solved, um, a sort of teaching to the test. And I think, right, there's always this sense that there has to be an encoded meaning that has been carefully built in, kind of like a, a bomb that might go off if you if you unlock it the right way. I'm fascinated by your um, notion there of the of hearing the shash between the the stations, of hearing the chaff, the chatter, mm. of hearing uh, the static, as you mm. say. It's not silence. No, it's really. You know, another poet whom I really adore is Wallace Stevens. And there's a line of Wallace Stevens I always think of when I try to describe what I love about poetry. And the line is, the hum of thoughts evaded in the mind. Mm -hmm. So again, another image of a kind of noise being made. When you really think about that line, it, it almost doesn't make any sense, right? The hum of thoughts evaded in the mind. Well, what is the sound of something that's being evaded? I don't really know, but apparently it's a kind of hum. And... I always think in some ways there's some poetry that gets at that, right? That this is why we have poetry, why it has to have a music, because it's this kind of hum of thoughts that we can't get to any other way or, or a static between the stations that is, you know, it's evocative to us of our actual lives in some way. Well, that's right. And one aspect of our lives indeed has to do with our moving in and out of our unconscious, our subconscious, into what we think of as consciousness. And I was struck, by the way, when you were describing John Ashbery, uh, you used the word daffiness. Mm -hmm. And you are, I may I suggest, unconsciously, subconsciously, consciously referring to his poem Daffy Duck and yeah. Holly Goes to Hollywood or whatever, in Hollywood. Was half unconscious, half kind of conscious. Um, yeah, he has a wonderful, I think it's a Sistina, right? I can't remember. Not Daffy, I haven't read it in a long time, but it almost doesn't matter. Sistina is a kind of elaborate form that, interestingly, Ashbery really loves. He loves these very elaborate song forms that come to us from the French and the um, Italian even though in some ways he's a very not formal poet. But yes, Daffy Duck in Hollywood, one of the things that's really important to know about Ashbery's work or is inescapable about his work is his incredible love for pop culture and the way that he combines, at times, in some of his best poems, a kind of high romantic, as in the romantic poets, a kind of high romantic yearning or sense of kind of Keatsian melancholy with this very American, very almost childish and sometimes daffy love of pop culture, which is a really powerfully just integrated into his work in the way that it is integrated now into all of our lives. 
You mentioned Wallace Stevens. Wallace Stevens, I think I'm right in saying, would, would have been quite a profound influence on John Ashbery, and I think he would probably set himself in the, the line that runs through Wallace Stevens back to whom? Dickinson, maybe? Yeah, Stevens was a huge influence on Ashbury. Stevens, Elizabeth Bishop, going back probably to Dickinson. I would say the Romantic poets. You know, I would say Keats, Wordsworth. There's a kind of periodic line, a kind of long sentence-driven syntax in a lot of Ashbury's work that feels very Wordsworthian. You know, it kind of goes over many, many lines, these long, almost discursive sentences. So yes, um, Dickinson, I think, with her, her sense of paradox and playfulness is also very... You mentioned Keats, and we don't want this to turn into a roll call, but somehow Keats actually may be more immediately behind the tapestry poem than anyone. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think this poem brings to mind a poem like Ode on a Grecian Urn. I mean, it's a kind of what we call ekphrastic poem, which is a poem about a work of art, which is a kind of poem that Ashbery writes a lot. I should just mention quickly, he was an art critic for many years. That was how he made his living. Um, So he writes beautifully about art and very perceptively. And one of his great poems is about um, a Parmigianino self-portrait called Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror. Here we have another poem that seems to be about a kind of work of art, a tapestry with a scene on it, but we don't know if it's a specific real work of art or a kind of imaginary work of art. Let's listen to it. Uh, John Ashbery's tapestry read here by Megan O'Rourke, and we might uh, decide for ourselves. Tapestry. It is difficult to separate the tapestry from the room or loom which takes precedence over it, for it must always be frontal and yet to one side. It insists on this picture of, quote, history in the making because there is no way out of the punishment it proposes, sight blinded by sunlight. The seeing taken in with what is seen in an explosion of sudden awareness of its formal splendor. The eyesight, seen as inner, registers over the impact of itself receiving phenomena and in so doing draws an outline or a blueprint of what was just there, dead on the line. If it has the form of a blanket, that is because we are eager all the same to be wound in it. This must be the good of not experiencing it. But in some other life, which the blanket depicts anyway, the citizens hold sweet commerce with one another and pinch the fruit unpestered as they will, as words go crying after themselves, leaving the dream upended in a puddle somewhere as though dead were just another adjective. Tapestry by John Ashbery, read there by Megan O'Rourke, that poem published in the May 21, 1979 issue of the magazine. I'm reminded there, as you read it, that the room-loom slippage there in the second line is very typical of John Ashbery. I don't want to suggest that he has ticks, but it is true that like most poets, uh, he uses certain devices again and again. Absolutely. So one of the things that one notices he often does is he uses a word that's almost a misreading. There's almost like a shadow word beneath it so that 
uh, I don't know if he's actually used this, but an example that comes to mind is that one might say the bees hymn instead of the bees hum. And he's talked about this in interviews that he almost reads his poems over and misreads them and then goes back and puts the misread word in. And here it's as if he's kind of put it in as he's writing from the room. And then that makes him think of loom, which is, of course, what makes a tapestry, the, from the room or loom, which takes precedence over it. Now, those uh, words resonate not only in the uh, area of the textile, mm. in this case, but in uh, the area of the text, the weave of words, the word room, of course, yeah. translating as stanza. Absolutely. And then the loom, again, one of the central notions of the line, and we have something dead on the line, the line uh, associated with the word for a piece of flax or Mm. a thread Mm -hmm. uh, that's been woven here. So he quite cleverly incorporates those ideas in the in the poem. Yeah, I mean, without getting too arty or self-conscious about it, it's an incredibly self-conscious poem about making, right? And, and the tapestry from the very beginning, as he's asking us to look at it, he from the very beginning draws our attention to the made quality of the tapestry as a work of art in which one might ultimately, as the poem does, kind of lose oneself in the act of seeing. But we don't get to that to the very end. And in the very beginning, he associates, I think, the making of the poem, as you're saying, with the making of the tapestry so that we get pretty directly into this meditation, really, on what it is that we're doing when we perceive, I think, really, what it is we're doing, what kind of action we're engaged in when we look at something. There's a section there, a couple of lines towards the end, in the last stanza of the poem, the citizens hold sweet commerce with one another and pinch the fruit unpestered. I mean, the word pinch is is fabulous mm-hmm. in, in the sense that it's going in at least two directions. Stealing the fruit. Yeah, stealing the fruit, pinching it. It's very tactile. I also love unpestered there and the idea that the fruit, they are themselves unpestered, but the fruit may be unpestered. That's right. right. That's right. Um, now, it's going interestingly in a couple of directions. It's not going in a c- couple of directions again just for the sake of it. Right. And there is this sense of almost mischief there in this poem that has been very very abstract, really, until this point. Um, it gets deeply tactile and sensual and I feel like when I get to these lines, I really see the picture. I see the way that the citizens are there almost as they might be in a Bruegel painting and pinch the fruit unpestered. It takes it up down from the museum wall, I think. It does. They're testing if it's ripe, Mm -hmm. if indeed the commerce might be sweet. Mm-hmm. If they're mm-hmm. if they're ready for picking, I mean, it's a little a, erotic, I think too. Right? I think it you is, know? and there's 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 a we go back through Keats, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. who's interested in fruit, to Shakespeare. Yes. The citizens hold sweet commerce. One could almost be forgiven for thinking that uh, Shakespeare wrote mm-hmm. uh, not only mm-hmm. that line, but commerce with one another and pinch the fruit on pasture. Absolutely. Even we think a bit of the fruit of that forbidden tree, as Milton wrote about the the apple. I mean, he's not belaboring anything, but there is that sense of ripeness, fruition, possibly something that could rot or have pests in it. I mean, it's all there laden in that tiny little half of line. That's right. And 
I don't think we're imagining these connections. They're all quite happily coexisting. It's as if the elevator car is full, but everyone is quite happily standing packed in there, one against the other, one idea, one illusion packed in beside its neighbor, and all quite happily in concert. And also, I would say viscerally, right? And this is one of the the things that is important to remember about a poem, is that it makes us feel certain things. So we can unpack all of this that I agree is totally going on, but we kind of intuit it, too, as we as we read. It makes us feel a certain feeling, we see a certain scene, it kind of reminds us of Shakespeare and his, you know, intense vision of of human life as a kind of very vibrant thing. And that goes in contrast with the next line, which is as words go crying after themselves, right? So there's a kind of um, opposition being held here between the life that is on the tapestry and then this idea of the words that are making the poem, the, the threads that make the tapestry. I think a very powerful juxtaposition of kind of life and the making of life and the the trying to hold on to life. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Now, in the September 20th, 2010 issue of the magazine, we were very happy to publish Megan O'Rourke, your poem, Apartment Living, which you're going to read for us now. I'm sure a poem that will resonate for many uh, beyond the city of New York, but will certainly resonate for those of us who attempt to uh, live cribbed, cabined, and confined. <laughs> yes, this poem is very much written trying to capture that sense of being able to overhear your neighbors all around you and also sort of the pleasure one has as a poet of you know, you don't have to write the truth necessarily of what you're actually overhearing, right? You can make a story of what you might be overhearing or seeing. I was reading a lot of Shakespeare, actually, at the time, so I was trying to kind of get some of that Shakespearean dense language of of kind of visceral life into the poem. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? I mean, there's a strong argument, I would suggest, for a poet who's interested in writing as good a poem as she possibly can, to actually go to the people who are really good at it, and Shakespeare was one of those, I guess, Um, and and sort of put themselves at the knee of a master to apprentice themselves to someone who's really, uh, really spectacular. What do you think of that idea? 
I mean, that's how I do it. You know, I, I always read these um, people talking about how when they write, they don't read any other, you know, poets or novelists. They don't have their voices in their head. And it used to make me think I was a fraud because I obsessively read when I'm writing. Um, and I especially read Shakespeare, Keats, Dickinson, you know, going way back, Catullus, Sappho, whoever it might be that fills that need I have that day. So I don't know. Shakespeare for me is incredibly generative. I do think one has to be careful of what a friend of mine calls the Shakespeare effect, which is that almost any time you're reading a text and it quotes Shakespeare, you suddenly are like, oh, this book is so good or this poem is so good. So I think one can kind of lean unfairly on Shakespeare. But for me, he's just, you know, his language is just so fertile and fecund and rich and it kind of does things to my brain, sort of like priming. Now, is there anything we should be flagging here in the poem? Funnily enough, you refer to the etymology of flag as in to signal a stop uh, being being unknown in the poem. But anything else we should know it before we hear it? Because after all, as, as is always the case with these uh, podcasts, though we can listen to them again, I hope we will, we're hearing it flying by our ear for the first time. So what can I tell you about this poem? It's in the second person. It's sort of a you who could be addressed or could be a version of of a self. And I suppose this you has experienced some kind of um, romantic, erotic loss and is meditating on some of the ironies of apartment living, which also is a way of talking about the kind of proximity to many kinds of emotions and experiences that one has in a city. There's a wonderfully unbuttoned aspect uh, to it. I mean, are you conscious um, as you write a poem like this of your responsibility, perhaps even to Mm. present the state of being a woman in this particular world and to, without getting too grand about it, to bear witness to that in, in all its aspects? Yeah, I think with this poem, I really did think about that. And I I think often about this as a writer, just in the sense that, you know, one of the kind of grand complaints that a poet might have about writing today is this idea of being belated, right? That everyone has said what there is to say that, again, as my friend Wallace Stevens said, you know, the freshness of night has been fresh a long time, Um, which is another line I love. But I often think, you know, there's so much about women's experience that it may have been rendered in the broad strokes, but it hasn't been rendered in their particularities. Um, and so I always take comfort in that as a writer, actually. And and really, there's so much about human experience, broadly speaking, that still hasn't been rendered, especially as the world changes around us. But I did think about this, and I, I do think this is a poem, in my experience, that has spoken to many 20-something girls living in, in New York. One of them said she had it taped above her desk, and that made me actually really happy. Well, girl I met. wouldn't it? Yes, I mean, yes. to have a poem... Uh, I'm sure there are many desks over which there are poems from The New Yorker taped. And I mean, it's one of the delights of being involved with the magazine is to think that that might be the case. So here we go. Apartment living. Apartment living. So those despotic loves have become known to you, rubbing cold hands up your thighs, leaving oily trails, whispering just how you like it, right? Upstairs, the sorority girls are playing charades again, smoking cigarettes, wearing shifts, burning pain into their synapses. Life is a needle, and now it pricks you, 
the silver light in which you realize your attempts at decadence tire the earth and tire you. The etymology of flag, as in to signal to stop, is unknown. It is time to sit and watch. Don't call that one again. He's pitiless in his self-certainty. You used to be so. You laid your black dress on the bed. You stepped in your heels over sidewalk cracks. You licked mint and sugar from the cocktail mixer, singing nonsense songs. And the strangers, they sang along. That was Apartment Living, written and read by Megan O'Rourke. That final couplet, singing nonsense songs and the strangers, they sang along, has a wonderful ring to it. I mean, we mentioned Shakespeare earlier on. This is a condensed, a slightly shorter line length, of course, but one that uh, the, the, the gist of it is, is one that Shakespeare would recognize. Yeah, so I think I had been reading a lot of his sonnets at this time, and his sonnets often end with this couplet rhyme at the, at the end to kind of bring it to a close. And often those um, ends are deceptive because just when they look like they're tamping something down into a kind of tidy summation, when you really read the poem closely, often that summation, as it were, can be read in a very ambiguous way. You know, think of the famous sonnet, let, let what is it? Um, let us not. Let us not to the marriage of true minds. I'm, I'm totally garbling the lines. I'm jet lagged. Admit impediment. Admit impediment. Yeah, the end of that poem, if you really look at it, is very uh, ambig- ambiguous and ambivalent. I would say. You know, there's a poignancy to that couplet, also. I think, in the sense that the portrait that's been painted along the way of this attempt at decadence in which the strangers are problematized Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the most part and Mm -hmm. why wouldn't they be Mm -hmm. there's something actually about the fact that they sing along it's not just that they're along for the ride but it actually allows for some moment of not only physical intimacy but actually emotional connection absolutely To me, the most interesting poems are always the poems that get at kind of paradox or complexity of of human experience and don't merely problematize, right, or or merely bring in a kind of cynical element or a... I wanted something that really did give the reader and give the poem a sense of harmony almost, right? And also the rhyme allows that to be kind of embedded. So the, the sentiment is one of harmony, right? They're singing along. And then the rhyme actually kind of harmonizes it within the music of the poem, hopefully. You know, hopefully it's not too over the top. Oh, I think it's wonderful. Perfectly judged. Apartment living. So thank you so much for talking to us today. The wonderful apartment living, written and read there by Megan O'Rourke, and I think a poem that will be, after this, pinned to many more walls in the apartments of New York City. Tapestry by John Ashbery, as well as Megan O'Rourke's poem, Apartment Living, may be found on newyorker.com. John Ashbery's latest book of poems, we're pretty sure, is Breezeway. He's so prolific that it's hard to keep track of him. And Megan O'Rourke's most recent collection is The Long Goodbye. You may subscribe to this podcast. 
the Fiction Podcast and the Political Scene Podcast in the iTunes Store. And you may hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. For the moment, I'm Paul Muldoon, Poetry Editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, bye-bye. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes Store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of newyorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.